Now, I know some of you, some of you got the Friday email and may have read the scripture in Matthew. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, you starry Christians. And then some of you probably just saw it in the Friday email and thought, okay, good to know. And then some of you didn't even read the Friday email, and so you're, you're just seeing it in the bulletin for the first time. So I want you to know that we will read the scripture in Matthew, but we will read it at the end of the sermon. And if you need just a hint of what that scripture entails, it is a long list of names. If you attempted it in your own study, I applaud you because there are some really interesting names in this genealogy. Remember the time that you discovered that your parents were just people? It might have been when you had your own children and you realized that your parents did not know any more than you do. And look how well you've turned out. It might have been the first time that your parents leaned on your wisdom or your insight for a tough situation. You might have realized that your parents were just people when you became their caregiver. So that now that the roles are reversed, their frailty and their humanity comes into view. You know, clarity of this kind often comes retrospectively. In looking back over history or looking back over your own lifetime, digging through the many branches on your family tree, times of transition can often bring clarity. Whether it's a birth, your daughter looks like my grandmother. That's what every mother wants to hear, right? Or maybe it's in times of death when you learn something, something new. It's often in those times of transitions when secrets are finally revealed, when that burden might get finally confessed. And then you have these truths where you realize your parents, your grandparents, maybe your great-grandparents, weren't perfect in all their decision-making. They weren't holding any keys to special knowledge. Digging through any family history, we are hit with the stark reality of the fallen nature we all share. I mean, when you lay it out, you can see that our parents were just people. People doing often what we say as the best they could. Haven't you ever said that? It's an act of grace toward the generations before us for us to say they did the best they could. Sometimes though, Sometimes it's okay to mention that their best was still awful. And if you can admit that, it's an act of grace toward ourselves. 
Tara Westover grew up in a household of Mormon survivalists in rural Idaho. In her book, Educated, Westover tells stories of physical and psychological abuse and her eventual escape from most of her family. In an interview, she says, I say that my parents tried their best and it was devastating. They tried their best and it was tragic. I think there's some healthy release, healthy relief in the real, in that realization because most families are doing their best, right? Most families are doing their best. And in our filtered world of masking the truth and clear coding the mess, honest hardship really does have its place. Every family is a web of decisions, a tangle of choices, a labyrinth of traumas, a network of conflict and dysfunction. And it's likely that we often inherit these dysfunctions and then pass them on to our children unknowingly and unwillingly. But looking back into our family histories may be the very thing that keeps us grounded and helps us move forward. British psychotherapist Julia Samuel explains that locating ourselves in a context of a web or a network of our families might give us the truth that allows us to change and grow. Has anyone ever done a genogram here? Do you know what a genogram is? It's very similar to a family tree in that you sit down and you list your family members, but a genogram asks you to diagram more. It focuses on relationships between family members. You start looking for patterns of behaviors things that get glossed over and passed down through the generations. So in a genogram, not only do you list people, but you list out divorces, affairs. You map out suicides and alcoholism. You map out the estrangement between siblings and closeted encounters. In a genogram, you map out the messy stuff that can be hidden in a simple family tree chart. You map out the stuff that no one wants to talk about. The stuff that makes up your family history. The tragic and the difficult. The patterns of silence or ignorance. You map out the secrets and the skeletons. A genogram can put the stories of your family right in front of you. And then what do we do with these inherited stories of love and loss? What do we do with stories of generational divides and shared inherited trauma? What do we do with family stories 
of disastrous and painful. Right here in front of us is a family tree that we can read as a genogram because the mess and failures are right there in plain sight. That's like, not literally can you read that. It is the family tree of Jesus Christ, (laughs) which, I mean, we should all chuckle. There's, There's way more on there, right? Matthew's good news about Jesus Christ, Matthew's gospel about Jesus, who is the liberator, the one who saves the Messiah, Matthew starts his good news gospel with a family history. Matthew's genealogy highlights Israel's greatest moments, but also exposes her darkest days. The narrative begins with a long list of names that aren't fit for dogs or fish. I mean, Aminadab, Eliakim, Zodak, New. Those are just a few. One of Matthew's dominant theological themes is that Jesus brings a messianic hope, which is a hope that transcends failures and hardships. It's a hope that can break down old disruptive patterns. It's a hope of renewal and rebirth. And to get this hope across, Matthew takes a little bit of liberty with Jesus's family tree. He chooses to emphasize the telling of God's presence and God's acts of salvation rather than an actual lineage, rather than a factual storyteller. Looking at this genealogy, it becomes a theological genogram that is less concerned about accurate lineage and more about Jesus as being part of God's story and proclaiming that God is very much a part of our human story. So if you look at Jesus's parents and his grandparents, his whole lineage, we find that these people are just people. They weren't perfect in their decision-making. Most of them weren't given any secret knowledge. And if they were, they didn't listen very well. These people listed in Jesus's family tree did their best, but sometimes that was the worst. Jesus's genealogy is more than just names that include patriarchs and matriarchs of Israel's faith. If you're going to map out this Messiah's family tree, then of course you can expect to find the names of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Abraham lied about his wife and almost murdered his son. Isaac was a scoundrel and sort of weak in character, and Jacob stole from his brother. Maybe we should look for their wives, those intrepid women who birthed nations and kings, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. Instead, though, you don't find those women. You find matriarchs like Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah. You see, Matthew's not precious about who makes up Jesus's family tree. Matthew's Genesis, Matthew's beginning by listing all these names uncovers a peppered, and that's to say it lightly, 
peppered past. And the genealogy acts as a summons to confront and to own and to work through a web of family dysfunction. To acknowledge that even in the family of Jesus, this genogram reveals a woman who prostituted herself to her father-in-law in order to survive. Matthew's genealogy forces us to see a woman in Jesus' family who runs a brothel that aided Israel's army. This theologically rich genogram places Israel's most hated enemy, the Moabites, and a Moabite woman at the center of God's narrative of salvation. Matthew reminds us that Israel's most beloved king forced a married woman to sleep with him, and when she got pregnant, she had his husband, her husband murdered. And that leaves out all the liars and the cheaters and those who abused power in this family tree. Matthew's placement of Jesus' family record right here at the beginning of his narrative acts as a call for us to face the reality of an inherited and marred history, a shared, imperfect family heritage. Matthew's profile of the Messiah's family asks us to examine the generational trauma of Israel, the love and the loss as part of God's saving acts. There's an old Hasidic tale of a rabbi who sends a local man a telegram informing him that a relative had died and left him some valuable property. Eager to claim his inheritance, the man rushes down to the rabbi's office at the synagogue only to learn that the relative was Moses and the valuable property was the Jewish tradition. We travel through triumph and tragedy in these verses on Jesus' origins. But this beginning genealogy reveals Matthew's theme of messianic hope because what we see is not only that marred history. We see not only the shared trauma of oppression and omission, what we also see is God's salvific hope because we see God enfolding the outsiders. We see God redeeming sinners we see God transforming transgressions. In laying out this history, Matthew's not only mapping out the scandalous and ridiculous nature of Israel's past, but Matthew is also laying out the map for the scandalous and ridiculous truth of the gospel. And the ridiculous, scandalous, racy truth of the gospel is that God's acts of salvation endure. They endure through tragedy, through hardship, and through trauma. God's promise of salvation in Jesus the Messiah is on full display, open, confronting, and embracing Matthew's genesis, Matthew's beginning allows us to examine our own family histories with honesty 
and hope. We can boldly and faithfully affirm that our histories and our pasts are imperfect and messy. Our lineage is full of people doing their best and sometimes their worst. But in this family tree, the fullness of God is born into human history. This Lord and this Messiah has come to redeem our failures, our years of division, our tightly kept secrets, our shared trauma. This Lord, this Messiah has come to give us new life and a future, a hope. All of that goes hand in hand. Hear now a word from the Lord. An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Aram, and Aram, the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Solomon, and Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam was the father of Abijah, and Abijah was the father of Asaph, and Asaph was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh was the father of Amos, and Amos was the father of Josiah. And Josiah was the father of Jehokanah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation of Babylon, Jehokanah was the father of Salathiel, and Salathiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abedud, and Abedud was the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zodak, and Zodak the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud was the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar was the father of Mathon. Mathon was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. In the name of the one who comes, amen.